you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. The latter half of the 19th century was a time of unprecedented industrial growth in Pennsylvania, as it was elsewhere. But this growth, of course, was not without its drawbacks. Pennsylvania, and the United States as a whole, experienced a great number of worker strikes as the men actually doing the dangerous work in the factories, mines, and steel mills advocated for shorter workdays and better pay. Quite often, these strikes were put down with brutal force. The Pinkerton Detective Agency became well known as tools of the industrialists and were called out to quote-unquote settle labor disputes, often with bullets. The summer of 1877 had seen a nationwide strike of railroad workers. True to form, these were put down by a mixture of police, National Guard, and Pinkerton agents. In Pennsylvania, a railroad riot in Scranton resulted in four deaths, one in Reading in ten, One in Philadelphia featured about 25 dead, and a particularly bloody one in Pittsburgh on July 21st saw 40 men killed. The late 1880s were particularly bloody. May 5th, 1886 was the infamous Haymarket riot in Chicago, which resulted in four deaths. Less well known, however, are the other strikes and riots which preceded it. At this time, Scranton and Lackawanna County was a fairly new settlement, having been formally incorporated only 30 years before in 1856. The neighboring city of Wilkes-Barre had been founded in 1769, Pittston a year later, and Carbondale, just to the north, in 1851. The foundations of the city had been laid about a decade before, with the establishment of Lackawanna Iron and Coal. Scranton was also a hub of the Lackawanna and Western Railroad. Both these industries had been started by Selden and George Scranton, who obviously gave their name to the city. The Scranton of the late 19th century was a far smaller place than the city is today, consisting mainly of what is now considered downtown Scranton and the Hyde Park suburb on the opposite side of the Lackawanna River. The various cities in the Wyoming Valley, Wilkes-Barre, Pittston, and Carbondale, as well as smaller towns, didn't run together as they do today either, but were more clearly separated from one another. It was in the aforementioned Hyde Park section on Bromley Avenue that the story of the woman in black seems to begin. On November 5, 1886, 
The Scranton Tribune reported that the Phantom, who, quote, has been terrorizing the timid, folklore-loving people of a dozen suburban localities for the past six weeks, had been arrested. Policemen Thomas Lewis, Martin Girl, and Patrick McAndrew chased down the ghost, which they discovered to be a young man named David Farber. A later account appearing in a New York Times story says that Farber had been trying to scare some friends in an alleyway off Bromley Avenue. Farber appeared before Alderman William O'Ram and was held on $300 bail. I couldn't find any references to the previous sightings mentioned in the paper, at least not in the Scranton ones. The New York Times article expanding on the Farber arrest appeared on November 10th. It also gives some of the more dramatic incidents which seem to have preceded that one, but I'm not exactly sure. So I'm not 100% sure that Farber's arrest was the first incident, but I've counted it as such since the timing of when these other events takes place isn't really clear. The weird visitor first made her appearance in the Pine Brook section of the city, the article says, and was seen by two young women who were on their way home from a Saturday night hop. At a short distance from their homes, where the street is spanned by the Delaware and Hudson Canal Company's track, the young women were stopped by the woman in black, who said nothing but assumed a menacing attitude toward them. The girls were terrified and started to run, but the woman in black overtook one of them and hugged her until she almost had fainted. The other girl returned with help just in time, and the specter then disappeared like a flash. A second event took place only days before. A workman employed near the Lackawanna Iron and Coal Company's blast furnaces ran up to a group of his fellow workers and reported to them with bated breath and bulging eyes that he had just seen the woman in black, and that she was at that moment hiding in a lumber pile a short way from the bank of Roaring Brook. Immediately there was a rush in that direction, and although it was rather dark, several declared that they had seen a female figure dressed in black emerging from the lumber pile and running toward the river. Thinking they would be able to capture it, some of the men followed in close pursuit, but when they were near to the riverbank, the woman in black sprang over a precipice and disappeared in the cave of an abandoned mine. Then lamps were procured, and some of the men ventured into the cave and made diligent search, but could not find anybody hiding there. It was also said that the woman in black had been skulking around the silk mill, where, quote, the girls have, it is said, been frequently frightened within the last few days by this twilight visitor, chasing some of them on the night of November 7th. There are a few silk mills in Scranton, but it's likely they mean the largest, the Salkoit silk mill. November 17th was a particularly active day for the apparition. At 3 a.m. that morning, she appeared to Peter Wisenflew, a train engineer employed by the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad, otherwise known as the DLNW, was seen on Railroad Street in Hyde Park. Wisenflew said he was not accosted. That evening, a workman at the Diamond Shaft, a coal mine near today's Powderly Park, reported that the woman in black approached him, pulled his hat from his head, and peered at him. You are not the man I'm looking for, she told him and turned away. Another incident that night was reported by Wright J. Horton. As the incident was described in the Wilkes-Barre Evening News on November 23rd, Mr. Horton, barn boss for the Bridge Coal Company, 
was closing the stable doors when he saw the ghostly apparition close by him. He was considerably frightened when he saw the figure, but before he had time to do anything, she struck him a terrible blow, throwing him to the ground in a dazed condition. When he came to his senses, the woman had disappeared. He called to Julius Stevens, son of the ex-sheriff Stevens, who procured a revolver and with a large party of young men, made a hunt after the woman in black, but was unable to get any trace of her. No tracks could be discovered, or anything that would lead to the dwelling place of the eccentric damsel. The paper then goes on to describe how one young man living on 6th Street, today's 6th Avenue on the Hyde Park side of the river, known to be a favorite haunt of the apparition and site of the attack on Mr. Horton, made boasts that he was not frightened by the woman in black. Some friends of his got a dummy and dressed it like the apparition and sat it in front of the young man's door. Here, predictably, he saw the mannequin and, quote, nearly fainted with fear. Newspaper accounts of woman in black scares nationwide seem to be peppered with stories of foolhardy men who claim they'll be unfazed by the specter who inevitably completely lose it once confronted. Whether these refer to anything of substance or whether they are just newspaper bluster, who's to say? Another dramatic incident was related. It took place on a dark and stormy night, melodramatically enough. It seems, quote, a number of gentlemen were seated in a restaurant on Lackawanna Avenue. The streets were deserted and the storm raged furiously. All at once, the door opened quickly and the head of the ghastly-looking woman was seen. The door closed at once and one of the party opened it immediately and saw a tall figure in black rapidly turning the corner. The article then goes on to make a somewhat tenuous link between these events and an unfortunate Scranton widow whose son had been killed in the Civil War. She could never be made to believe that her boy was truly dead, the author wrote, and regularly visited the depot at the time of each incoming train, watching the passengers as they disembarked and peering into the car windows. By the end of November, however, sightings of the woman in black had spread beyond Scranton itself. Like some sort of insidious, questionably supernatural virus, the fear began to take root in practically every community in the Wyoming Valley. Byron Miller, who was a telegraph operator at the railroad station in the town of Moscow about nine miles southeast of Scranton, was at work when he heard a tapping at the window and looked up to see a tall black-clad woman who withdrew as he looked. Opening the door and looking out on the platform, though, he saw no one. He then walked the entire way around the station and still couldn't find anyone. Martin O'Hara, a brakeman working on the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad, also said that he saw the woman in black in the vicinity. When he saw her, she was standing in the middle of the railroad track glaring at him. He chased the woman, but she quickly vanished. This was reportedly on the same night as Miller's sighting, the weather before or after is unclear. By November 30th, the woman in black scare took root in Archibald, and thence to Carbondale. A story was recounted in the Carbondale Daily News for December 9th of a young man living on Pike Street. He had declared that he wasn't scared of the woman in black, and that if she ever showed up in Carbondale, he'd fight the apparition. The man's wife dressed herself in black and made herself known, and the previously unafraid young man screamed and yelled. The newspaper certainly alludes to the idea that his wife never revealed her deception to him. 
Aside from rumors of the woman in blacks having, having been seen on some of the far-flung reaches of Main Street, however, this seems to be the only real sighting of the apparition from there, despite the emphasis placed on it in a New York Times article in January. It was around this time that the woman in black, or more like, a woman in black, since it seems very few people in the valley actually believed she was a bona fide supernatural entity, appeared on the Depot Bridge, on the site of today's Water Street Bridge, according to the same New York Times article. She was going in the direction of West Pittston, it was said, and then, as if to dispel a mundane nature, it went on, and her eyes were brighter than the electric lights. Around this time, there were rumors that the woman in black had departed Scranton, as the nights had been clearer of late, and that she had gone to Wilkesbury. In response, the Wilkesbury Evening News wrote that they had a, quote, very good stock of spooks and of a kind that would knock the woman in black out in the first round. The spooks we refer to are wide-awake chaps who dress in blue and go around with a big club in their hands. Then, they got a dig in at their neighbor when they added, quote, Scranton seems to be deficient in this particular. But back in Scranton, on December 8th, a well-known figure in town by the name of Slammer Coleman left a bar around noon and tried to parade down Lackawanna Avenue garbed as a woman in black, but was arrested before he got very far. By December 15th, woman in black sightings were reported from the village of Kingston, and within a few days, the tales left the county reaching Hawley and Wayne County. By the next month, the woman in black sightings had migrated to the village of Miner's Mills. The woman, man, apparition, or whatever it was, had, the Wilkes-Barre Dollar Weekly News reported on Christmas Day, been seen going mysteriously about, at all times of night and day, and had a habit of walking directly up to people and looking intently in their faces for a few seconds, and then unconcernedly walking away. It was often seen that she was carrying a pistol. At around 5 a.m. on the morning of December 22nd, Fred Rickers, owner of a stable in Miner's Mills, was on his way to work when the woman approached him, grabbed the wrist of the hand in which he carried a lantern, forcibly raised the arm to illuminate his face, stared at him for a moment, then let go of his wrist and walked away. That night, a woman in black also put in an appearance in Parsons. Around 11 o'clock, Frank Opplinger was walking home from work along the railroad tracks near a place called Gardner's Switch when he encountered the woman in black. This time, she silently walked up behind him, passed by him, and kept walking at a brisk pace, paying him absolutely no mind. Opplinger seemed quite certain that the woman in black was, in this case at least, actually a woman. A rather more fantastical tale was reported in the Wilkes-Barre News on December 27th. A young man from Mosey's town was in the town visiting a few nights before. Near Clinton Herring's home at 193 South Canal Street, today South Pennsylvania Avenue, he saw the woman in black approaching from the direction of the hazard wire rope works. She, she raised the veil over her face, revealing, quote, a strange face that was pale and haggard, while her eyes glared like coals of fire. True to form, she stared at him for a moment, and then pulled his hat off. She continued to stare, and then after a moment walked away. Just as the woman in black had her favorite haunts, 
on 6th Street in Scranton, so she had ones in Canal Street in Wilkes-Barre. Around the same time, George Richardson was heading to work around 5.30 one morning, and as he approached a bridge on Scott Street, the woman approached him and went through her typical motions of lifting his hat, staring at him, and then walking away. Richardson stood in place for a moment, and the woman motioned for him to move along. The woman in black also appeared on Church Street in Plymouth on December 24th. She also put in an appearance there on December 26th, and on December 27th, she was seen near the Bull Run Crossing carrying a large walking stick. On Christmas Day, a wagon driver employed by Louis Tisch, a grocer who operated a store at 142 South Main Street in Wilkes-Barre, had an unusual encounter with a woman in black. As he entered the barn, a woman standing near the entrance followed him aside and, att- and attempted to take his lantern. When he refused, she began grabbing bottles off the nearby shelves and hurling them to the ground. Then, oddly, she told him that unless he let her look at him, she would go smash all the cigar boxes in the store. The employee tried to speak to the woman, who merely walked away muttering, Not yet, not yet. On December 26th, a Sunday, a woman in Lincoln Street was accosted by three young men who drew pistols and said she was the woman in black. They dispersed, though, when a man who had been accompanying her returned to her side. I'm uncertain whether this is the event mentioned in the January New York Times article, which mentions that the woman was in mourning clothes or not. That night, a Dr. Harvey of Wilkes-Barre, hearing his dog and horses making noise, made his way out back and opened his barn door. There, in the closed barn, he found a woman in black sitting idly in a chair. A young man from Forty Fort said that the woman in black took his hat. He ran, but later on that night he encountered another woman in black, presumably the same one since she put his hat back on his head. At about 9.30 p.m. on the night of December 28th, William Gardner, Edward Siley, and Peter Ritz were all working at the Wilkes-Barre Lace Manufacturing Company on Cortland Street. Gardner and Siley were attending the machines, with Ritz as a combination engineer and night watchman. The woman in black on this occasion made a visit to the interior of a building and entered the room where Gardner and Siley were at work. She strode through the room and stopped about six feet behind Siley. He turned, and both he and Gardner fled from the room. Even though these two had fled, the sable terror, as she was now being called by newspaper writers with particularly florid styles, didn't follow. She stood in the room. A few, min- a few minutes later, Peter Ritz entered the room, and not as frightened as the other two had been, asked the woman what she wanted. When she didn't answer, he told her to leave, and she did. All, all three were to later say that the woman was carrying a knife and a pistol on her belt. Gardner and Siley left work, but Ritz finished his shift. Of the other two, Gardner continued to work night shifts, although Siley steadfastly refused. Keep this in mind. It factors into one of my thoughts on this. This incident is also referred to as a practical joke played on Gardner and Siley by another employee of the factory, both by the Wilkes-Barre Record on December 30th and the Sunday Leader on, on January 2nd, 1887. Several hours later, Scott McManamon saw the woman in black several streets away at the corner of Madison and Scott Streets. 
At about 1 a.m. that night, he said he said he was walking home from a billiards hall when he turned the corner and saw the woman approaching. Similarly to the factory sighting, she was carrying a revolver, and McManamon said that she yelled at him to stop, although, although, understandably, he didn't, and in fact quickened his pace. At about 10 p.m. on the night of December 29th, Deputy Sheriff Michael Gowan left his home on Scott Street in the company of his dog. He was near a brickyard just off the Delaware and Hudson Railroad tracks when a tall black-clad woman wearing a black bonnet emerged from the interior. She came at him, and Gowan struck at the figure. The woman in black cursed at Gowan and began walking away down Scott Street. The man then sicked his dog on the figure, and she ran into the Conrad Lee planing mill on Canal Street and hid in a lumber pile. The location of this sighting is very near, practically identical, with the early en- earlier encounter that George Richardson has had. A short time later, William Bowman encountered the woman in black at the corner of South Main Street and Horton Street. She went through the typical ceremony of lifting his hat and staring at him a moment. He claimed the woman was fully eight feet tall and looked like a corpse. In another encounter at Gardner's Switch, one morning at around 5 a.m., Peter Soley was crossing through on his way to work when the woman in black appeared, lifted his hat, and stared at him. Though this was typical behavior, what followed was not. She pulled out a photograph of a constable O'Reilly, saying that she would never rest until she took revenge on him. Then she walked on to, towards Wilkesbury proper. By Constable O'Reilly, she likely was referring to a, a Wilkesbury police officer who had been quoted in the papers as saying he wasn't frightened of the woman in black and would arrest her if he saw her. A policeman named Connors was at the corner of West Market and River Streets when he saw two men running quickly away from the bridge. He stopped the two men to see what was going on, and they described how they had seen the woman in black. We were going over to our homes in Kingston, and were talking away about one thing or another, and the night being dark did not notice anything in particular until we got to the first pond hole. We were walking on the horse car tracks when a tall woman dressed in black seemed to raise right up in front of us, not over six feet away. As we suddenly stopped, she came toward us and stooped down as though to look closely at our faces, and that is all we waited to see. She screamed at us to stop in a screechy, cracked voice as we started to run toward the bridge, but you may rely that we did not stop at her command. When we got to the bridge where the light shone out, we kind of half turned round to see where she was, and were very sorry to see the sight. She was within 20 feet of us, and out of her white face shone wild glaring eyes that looked like coals of fire. We did not turn round anymore. We just made for the end of the bridge. When they left Officer Connors, they went to the house of a man named John Keeley and refused to cross back over the river until the next morning. Woman in Black Mania didn't cease with a new year either. Early in January, a lawyer named Joe Moore was walking near Gardner Switch and Parsons, the same place both Frank Opplinger and Peter Soley had had their encounters, when he claimed to have met a woman in black who kissed him and then ran off. The ghostly figure also reappeared in Plymouth, where a workman said he saw her near the number 11 coal mine one evening and followed her to Lance Slope, where he lost track of her. It was also in Plymouth that on January 3rd, Tom Murphy, 
living on Turkey Hill outside of town, dressed as a woman in black and walked around the neighborhood scaring some children. One boy's father came out of the house with a gun and was about to shoot when the supposed ghost yelled, My God, Mr. Roberts, don't shoot, it's Murphy. The papers thought this would put an end to the Fuhrer. Ha. One evening around January 10th, the men working the night shift at the Central New Jersey Railroad's freight yards at Baltimore Street, now Wilkes-Barre Boulevard, and East Northampton Street, encountered a woman in black. This particular one was sleeping in a train car. She didn't wake until one of the brakemen grabbed her by the arm, at which point she shrieked, leapt up, threw a mask she had been wearing, and yelled at the men to keep away or she would use some weapon she had on her person. She then made her way out of the train car and fled along the railroad tracks. On January 12th, she entered the yard of 162 Lincoln Street, the home of Charles Leem. Mr. Leem, his family, and a neighbor man named Kearns saw the woman. She was standing still, looking upwards toward the sky. Leem tried to speak with her, but she made no reply, but after a while, simply turned and left. At about 2 a.m. on the morning of January 14th, Officer Valentine Miller was posted near the New York Oyster House on South Main Street when he saw a woman in black walking down the street. She was, quote, a large stalwart female, and Officer Miller followed her for a short time, eventually passing her, crossing Main Street and stationing himself at the home of W.W. Brown at 137 South Main. When the woman in black came up to where he stood, he asked her what she was doing and who she was. In response, the woman kicked the officer and shoved him to the ground. He gave chase once he got up, but the ghost player lost him in the alleys of the neighborhood. He said that the woman was over six feet tall and very muscular. He thought it likely to have been a man in disguise. Interestingly, the address where Officer Miller got into the scrap with the supposed ghost was almost directly opposite Louis Tisch's store. Then the woman in black sightings were quiet for a bit. Things had gone the way things usually do in these sorts of social panics, with ads in the newspaper making reference to all the sightings. On February 1st, 1887, they resumed. Patrick Early and Dennis Gallagher of Wilkes-Barre were walking down North Wyoming Street when they saw a woman in black, with Gallagher taking hold of it. It was discovered to be Joe Richards, a local butcher. And then after this encounter, sightings died off once more, or at least the main flap of them did. In February of 1893, the woman in black appeared near Cork Lane, which was not a particular thoroughfare as one might think, but an alternate name used for McCarthyville, a mining community just outside Pittston, and now a neighborhood in that city. The sightings took place at the schoolhouse. A boy named Patrick Ruin said that the woman was standing just outside after school one day. She grabbed him, but he got away and ran to his home. Several other children had also apparently said that the woman in black had accosted them. The woman was described as nearly seven feet tall, in a black dress and veil, slender, with a deep voice. Now leave off discussing the sightings here. There really, this really isn't much more than an introduction to the encounters, which led all the way up through the 1930s. I suppose that's part of the problem with why this episode has ended up taking so long, that I went and got about 50 years worth of articles, 
and then really ended up only talking about six or seven years. On the other hand, the research for this has got me in the mood to start work on a book I had been working on about this sort of thing, so there's that. The identity of the woman in black was discussed quite often. Sometimes it was assumed that it was a woman, and motivations ascribed to her usually revolved around loss. Either, as mentioned earlier, it was a mother searching for her son who had died years earlier, or it was the widow of a murdered man searching for her spouse's killer. It seems, however, that the woman in black was more often thought to be a man in disguise, owing to her large size and sometimes deep voice. Sometimes this came along with presumed motivations as well. A common one is that he was following his wife who had been stepping out on him in the evenings. Certainly, though, whenever a woman in black was caught, it turned out to be a man. I suppose given how other woman in black sightings in other places turned out as well, it's also likely that at least some of the sightings were due to transvestism in a time before it was as accepted as it is now. I've certainly read sightings where the man caught seems to have been wearing women's clothes well, just because he wanted to. Another possibility is criminals scouting out their activities first, or just trying to avoid detection by being in disguise. The Cork Lane schoolhouse woman in black seems to me to be a disguised pedophile as much as anything. But one thing the woman in black was never thought to be, despite how it was sometimes presented in the newspapers, was a ghost. It seems to have been commonly accepted knowledge that all the individual sightings were very mortal. I've discovered the same kind of thing about spring Jack sightings, which I suppose these are more than a little bit similar to. The entire flap seems to have been preceded by mentions of a black-veiled woman who bailed two criminals named Rice and Lefflingwell out of jail. Nonetheless, they were promptly rearrested by Scranton police. The two men were seemingly swindlers, and one in several other cities in Pennsylvania and Delaware as well. The Wilkes-Barre Sunday News dealer stated, perhaps unnecessarily, that, quote, the veiled woman is a sort of mysterious person, and that she was popularly believed to have been an accomplice of Rice and Lefflingwell in disguise to avoid arrest. It's an interesting coincidence, I think, that the veiled woman followed the police to Scranton, and shortly thereafterwards, the sightings in Scranton began. I'm not suggesting that the woman in black seen walking around that town was the same as this apparent criminal accomplice, but rather that there was some sort of craze caused by news coverage of the veiled woman. It is said in the New York papers that the woman in black sightings had been ongoing for a while before the November 10th article, but at the same time, I can find no confirmation of this from the local press at the time, which also gets us into the ways the woman was addressed by the press. The Scranton papers tended to be skeptical and dismissive of the woman in black, and there are really only a handful of stories appearing in Scranton about the woman. And those that do are almost invariably about arrests of people impersonating the ghost. The newspapers of Wilkes-Barre, however, were far more credulous and devoted far more newspaper columns to the woman. The sightings described sometimes have more fanciful details. But did the woman in black sightings have an origin not in the veiled woman of the criminal realm, but in the labor movement? 
There's a reason I included the information on riots and strikes in the introduction. The late Victorian era, in which the sightings of women in black and the like were most common, corresponds nicely to the time period in which the push for unionization and workers' rights was beginning to gain momentum. One thing I noticed early on is the number of times these supposed apparitions, both here in Scranton and elsewhere, appear at factories, mines, and railroads. And sometimes, as with the Gardner Siley Ritt sighting, they appeared in factories. These were also probably some of the more dangerous occupations of the era. Could the appearance of the woman in black be meant to frighten workers away from these places, a sort of passive-aggressive strike or boycott in a sense? Or could it have been a bizarre sort of political theater? A recently voted out mayor of Scranton, Terence Powderly, was also a major player in the workers' rights movements as in the workers' right movement as leader of the Knights of Labor. In fact, when he was running as mayor, his political opposition sarcastically referred to his campaign as the Kamalia Maguire Party, referring to a group of Irish coal miners ostensibly fighting for the rights of miners. At the time of the sightings, the Democratic Party were considering running Henry George as presidential candidate, with Powderly as vice president in the election of 1888. While all these possibilities may may be the answer in at least some of the instances, the vast majority likely much simpler explanation. Boredom. It's not much of a coincidence, I don't think, that ghost playing dies off for the most part in the 1930s. Well-lit streets were becoming much more of a thing by then. And at the time, radio was coming into American homes more and more. As a result, people actually had things to do in the evenings. It seems like I'm making some sort of joke, but I think it's in all likelihood true, to be honest. The woman in black and the so-called cloak man, as similar figures were sometimes called, are all but forgotten today. Aside from obvious historical representatives of the type, such as Springheel Jack, and occasional references to ghostly hoaxes, or more often, those who donned the disguise of Bigfoot or some other cryptid in order to fool the unwary, tales of these ghost pranksters are often relegated to the yellowed pages of the newspapers of yesteryear. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.